0: Welcome to the Geneva Peace Week podcast series, a project of the Geneva Peacebuilding platform. Geneva Peace Week is a leading annual forum in the international peacebuilding calendar. It's a week of workshops, videos and podcasts just like this one, hosted by different organizations and actors around the world. It's founded on the core belief that each and every person, actor and institution has a role to play in building peace and resolving conflict. You're listening to a podcast produced for Geneva Peace Week 2021, held from the 1st to the 5th of November, with both live workshops and pre-recorded contributions. For more content like this, join the conversation at www.genevapeaceweek.ch.
1: Federalism can provide the ability to recognize the diversity of a country, of a population, of a society.
2: A basic thing that needs to happen is to have a clarity on the type of federalism. How do you share power and resources? How do you decentralize certain services?
3: We should first of all start with strengthening the current systems that are already there and then going into gradually to a federalism model that is unique for Yemen.
0: This is Forum Fedcast, Episode 7 Federalism, a pathway for peace. In 2018, the United Nations and the World Bank published the findings of a groundbreaking two-year study on the prevention of violent conflict. The Pathways for Peace report, the first publication of its kind produced by the UN and World Bank, focuses on the management of conflict and how divided societies can be prevented from descending into violence. According to the findings, conflict prevention is not only possible, but it is cost-effective and, most importantly, it works. While there is no single magic conflict prevention formula that can be applied to all situations, common threads emerging from different experiences can help in the development of Pathways for Peace. The report states that federalism has, quote, proven effective in many cases in reducing local violent conflict where there is horizontal inequality among groups. It also asserts that subnational governance arrangements can support the protection of rights for minority and majority groups, the management of regional inequalities, and the establishment of a balance of power, all of which reduce the risk of conflict within societies. This raises the prospect that federalism could potentially offer a pathway for sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected states. But a number of questions remain underexplored. Has federalism really proven effective in reducing violent conflict? If it has, in what situations has it been effective and why? What are the key dynamics at play? And can we identify specific processes or practices that can support these peacebuilding efforts across different contexts and scenarios? In a previous installment of Forum Fedcast, episode 3, available to download now, we heard how federalism has been used as a peacebuilding tool in Ethiopia, Myanmar, and Cyprus. In this episode, we're taking it to the next level, as we explore the concept and viability of a federalism pathway for peace with practitioners around the world. We'll hear perspectives on the links between federalism, fragility and conflict prevention from guests working at different levels of the peacebuilding community of practice. Mediation specialists, civil society leaders, governance practitioners and development specialists. And, as usual, we're going global, with country experts from Yemen, Somalia and Sudan. But, before we get to the possibilities of Pathways, what about that assertion in the UN and World Bank report? Has federalism actually proven effective in reducing violent conflict?
1: Pathways for Peace actually drew upon research which showed that power sharing, particularly multi-dimensional power sharing, was linked with more sustainable peace agreements.
0: Marie-Joëlle Zahar is a Professor of Political Science and Director of the Research Network on Peace Operations at the University of Montreal. Between 2014 and 2016, she served as a mediation expert for the United Nations, specialising in power sharing.
1: This is research which I think deserves to be recognised and acknowledged. It was conducted by colleagues Caroline Hartzell and Matthew Hardy. The proposition was that power sharing provided a pathway out of conflict and potentially towards peace, but in fact, that it was more successful the more dimensions of power sharing there existed in a given society. That meant, of course, that federal systems, which have usually power sharing alongside territorial and political dimensions, but often also around economic dimensions because of resource sharing, and maybe sometimes even others, were more likely to be successful than standard consociational type power sharing, which is only interested in divvying up central governance between various groups.
3: Federalism was one of the proposals during the eight-month-long National Dialogue Conference where there were subcommittees who were tasked to examine various models of federalism.
0: Muna Lukman is a Yemeni activist, peacebuilder and founder of Food for Humanity, a civil society organisation which provides humanitarian aid and mobilises women and youth for peacebuilding in the country. Since 2013, when a national dialogue conference was convened with the aim of bringing conflicting parties to a settlement in Yemen, federalism has been viewed as a mechanism that can help to resolve the regional tensions and political crises that underpin and drive the violent conflict in the country.
3: But the problem in Yemen was not only the power sharing, it was also the corruption. In Yemen, we've always had an issue of corruption, and that has been really one of the main issues that has led even to the war right now. And it was also understanding what federalism was. So the proposal itself was there, but there was a lot of resistance because the mechanisms for federalism and the actual details of it were not well communicated. I do think it could help a lot, and actually it could be one of the only solutions for Yemen currently. We're actually already in a federal state, but not in the kind of technocratic model that we think of. But it's already there. We already have the South is nearly independent. There's a lot of violence there. But can we have the North controlled by the Houthis armed forces. So it's now a federalism, which is controlled by militias and armed forces. What we want to transform is to a technocratic civil federalism that can really respond to the grievances of the people and start preparing for a transition period.
2: I broadly agree with that proposition. There is no doubt that federalism really creates opportunities for decentralization and local control of power and resources, which is at the heart of federalism at the end of the day.
0: Abdi Ainte is Managing Director of Lasfort Consulting Group, an East Africa-based consulting firm which supports governance development processes in Somalia, Kenya, Ethiopia and Djibouti. Between 2015 and 2017, he served as the Minister of Planning and International Cooperation of the Government of Somalia. Federalism as a means of peacebuilding and stabilisation has been on the table in Somalia since 2004. In 2012, a new federal constitution was provisionally adopted by a National Constituent Assembly comprised of members representing various groups in Somali society.
2: In the Somali context, federalism has significantly reduced civil war and other conflicts. And in fact, one can say that since the adoption of federalism in Somalia about 20 years ago, people have found ways to govern themselves at the very local communities, which is what federalism is partially trying to achieve. Now, having said that, federalism is also an inherently complex governing system, especially for small countries like Somalia, especially in societies that are both polarized, like Somalis, but who are very homogeneous. And so in the context of Somalia, although it certainly reduced active conflicts among clans and other stakeholders, it has created new types of conflicts. For example, it created new competition for resources and
4: power. Yes, definitely I agree with this, because inequality among groups or a region is this the main reason for conflict in Sudan.
0: May Taha is a governance consultant and technical specialist currently working with the Forum of Federations in Sudan. From 2012 to 2021, she was the director of the Sudan Programme with Conflict Dynamics International. From 2008 to 2011, she worked as a Programme Officer in the Forum's office in Khartoum. In October 2020, the Juba Peace Agreement was signed between the transitional government of Sudan and representatives of a number of armed groups. Under the terms of the agreement, Sudan will be established as a federation. But many of the details on exactly how the federal system will operate are still to be decided.
4: If you look what's going on in the past in the South Sudan or in Darfur, in the two areas, Blue Nile and Nuba Mountain, With all the exclusion of all those areas from development, from economic opportunities, from social culture opportunities, as you know, Sudan is very diversified country. We have a lot of tribes, is more than one seventy something tribes, and there is three hundred something local languages, and it is it is really exclusion and inequality. This is what brings all this conflict in Sudan.
0: It seems that the UN and World Bank report is onto something with federalism. But there are caveats. Peacebuilding is complicated. And, as Marie-Joëlle explains, in practice, the application of federalism has not always produced sustainable peace.
1: I think that the research is both confirmed and not by experience. There was a previous episode of this podcast that looked at the way in which federalism has been used as a peace building tool in Ethiopia, Myanmar, and Cyprus. Now, in all three instances, it did, for a brief period of time, reduce the intensity of violence. It also provided opportunities to build some sort of institutional mechanisms but unfortunately, it did not deliver peace, nor did it deliver real conflict resolution. Cyprus, after all, is the quintessential example of a place where, although there is no violent conflict, and part of that is because of the mechanisms that people have been trying to think about, there is still no willingness to make peace. Power sharing has the potential to build peace, Federalism has specific potential because of these added dimensions, but the potential in and by itself is not enough.
0: So, federalism has potential as a pathway for peace, but it faces obstacles. Fragile and conflict affected states are often difficult environments for governance development. A number of barriers may stand in the way of building sustainable peace through federalism or other forms of power sharing. Perhaps one of the most difficult challenges is a lack of trust and will among conflicting parties to work together to build a better future.
1: What you need in post-conflict countries is foremost trust. You need to build trust between groups and leaders who only have an experience of conflict and therefore do not see good objective reasons to believe in what others say, to believe in the goodwill of others, and to believe in their ability to make compromises for the greater good. It is
4: not about just political will, about the mistrust between actors. And this issue is still, we facing it now. The mistrust and having very detailed vision about what
1: you want and how you want it and all these things. This is not only about interests. It is also about identities. And where identities come in, people care very deeply and compromises are not easy. I have had the opportunity to sit in on discussions of identity in places like Mali that were considering pretty extensive decentralization. No matter what powers you gave the various parts of the country. The fact that there were still some people who held power, who were uncomfortable with acknowledging that the country was made up of diverse components, meant that for their interlocutors for the other parts of the country, they did not feel fully integrated. They did not feel fully acknowledged as citizens.
0: The Yemen example highlights a number of critical obstacles to peacebuilding in highly divided societies. When groups descend into violent conflicts to resolve their grievances, it can lead to social fragmentation, exacerbate weaknesses within existing governance institutions, and damage the rule of law and protection of rights.
3: Yemen the fragmentation itself, that's really exasperated even more divisions and, and this will of course harden any demands for increased local autonomy And that's because the monopolization of the political, economic, and military authority in the capital, Sana'a. And then we have the division of the legitimate government, which is the internationally recognized government. So we have that in the South, and there's a lot of division between them there, and violence and fighting. The gaps in the rule of law itself, and the basic rights protection mechanisms themselves, the institutions, for instance, the ministries, the government, the justice, everything, There is widespread corruption for governance, or actually lack of governance at all. The corruption, it's not just here and there. It's a widespread corruption, patronage networks of corrupted state institutions, including the security services, the judicial institutions. So this all affects the social and rights issues, the provision of services uh, for the
0: Yemeni people. Ultimately... This can lead to erosion of social cohesion, which deepens challenges of reconciliation and peace-building. The deadly
3: conflict in Yemen and the military escalation, of course it brings uh, overwhelming humanitarian challenges, challenges to peace-building, challenges to stability, and all of that is really affecting the, the community on the ground. The relationships, the social ties between people and families and now, for the first time in the history of Yemen, we have a, even a religious divide, which we've never had before. And this is causing a lot of hate speech and also even killing.
0: One of the primary drivers of conflict in many countries is inequality. Competition for natural resources and the revenues generated from them is often a key source of tension, as has been reflected in Somalia.
2: Certainly, resources are at the heart of the debate and the tension when you talk about federalism in Somalia. And I'm talking about natural resources. There are potential for oil or even just fishing. There is a lot of competition between the federal government and the member states, and there are no clear divisions or a framework to divide those resources. Certainly, certain parts of the country are more resourceful than others. And that's very natural everywhere. And so I've been part of debates years ago on fishing, for example, and how to share the resources around fishing. I mean, Somalia has the longest coast in Africa, and all of our federal member states have a coastline, but some have longer coastline than others. And so this is creating a very significant tension. But also the key revenue streams in Somalia come from taxes that the federal government and the states levy upon business people through the ports. But not all the states have ports. Only two of our five member states have actual ports, meaning that they have more revenue streams that are coming through to them more than others. And that's creating inequality and raising a lot of tensions and questions about the issues of resources because those ports ultimately belong to the Somali
0: people. If the root causes of conflict The long-standing grievances which caused parties to take up arms in the first place are not addressed. It may be difficult to bring adversaries together to negotiate a peaceful settlement based on power sharing. Muna believes this is a factor which has inhibited the peace process in Yemen.
3: I think it's really important for us to start addressing the long-standing grievances that have been towards the central government, first of all before we even speak about federalism, because it's those grievances that led us to war in the first place. And it's those grievances that are also having some of the parties hold back from the, the whole federalism discussion because they think that they will not have any resources and that it will not be equal, and that there will be a monopolization of political, economic, and military even resources and authorities. There's so many frustrations in Yemen, like unemployment and those who are using violence are intensified. There are so many spoilers, and the war economy itself is mainly the main factor, also in Yemen. All of these issues and core issues need to be addressed. But right now, what we are addressing in the UN-led peace process is just one or two of the of the elements, and then we leave all the rest. I'm not saying that the UN should discuss everything because it's not their job to do that, but they should encourage the Yemenis. They should provide the spaces, that's what the UN is is for. And so I think that's really important for us to see even a small change in the coming few months.
0: And related to the point of root causes, it's crucial that any governance or power-sharing solution addresses the actual problem it is designed to solve.
1: In many instances around the world, where federalism is being proposed or considered it is to address what we would loosely call ethnic conflicts. And by ethnic conflict, I mean conflicts between ethnic groups, even though the conflict might not be about ethnicity. And therefore there is a tendency to build ethnic federal solutions to address these kinds of conflicts. But if ethnicity is not the problem, what do we gain by building an ethnic federal solution? Aren't we simply basically privileging ethnicity as one mode of identity over others and therefore building paralysis within a system that ought to be able to change?
0: This is Forum Fedcast. Overcoming the challenges to peacebuilding in conflict-affected and fragile states is daunting. But as we've heard, federalism does have the potential to support sustainable peace. But what is the promise of federalism as a peacebuilding mechanism? What are the opportunities it provides? How does it help? Firstly, federalism provides a form of state organisation that allows communities to have a degree of control over governance in their local areas. This enables the local provision of essential services unequal service provision being a common source of grievance in divided societies. This is one of the aspects that makes it attractive as a peace mechanism in Somalia and Yemen.
2: I think the core element within the federal system that would support peace and stability in a context like Somalia is the ability for communities to control their fate, so to speak, at a local level. But more importantly, it is the provision of basic services at the local level, whether it's education, health, or even security, something that overly centralized states failed to do. One of the main triggers of Somalia's civil war in 1991 was that overly centralized state which failed utterly to provide basic services to people at the very local level, today, our people are able to access a lot of those services at a very local level. And I think that contributes to peace and stability in the long run. That's, I would say, the core element and what is attractive about federalism, especially for a post-conflict society like Somalia.
1: Maybe
3: at the beginning, I wasn't very convinced about federalism until I really understood it much more. And um, when I started working um, as a volunteer at Governorate of Taiz, and I saw how... We had so many aspirations at the local level that we really wanted to implement for instance some development project with Shok Ahmed Heil, who who's the governor, who's technocrat, and he was always blocked by the centralization of the government and the control. So we had the law in his favor, but it was always monopolized. From that time I started thinking that yes, we need an approach where the people at the local level can decide, but it's also within the state.
0: Federalism also provides institutional mechanisms which enable conflicting parties to feel secure in pursuing common interests, while also affording a level of autonomy that allows them to protect their individual interests.
1: Essentially, the reason why I think federalism provides a better opportunity for sustainable peace is that if it is designed properly, it allows all parties that were in conflict to both share in decision-making, without abdicating some of the important either identity or resource or security privileges that they think are essential for their survival. The late Richard Simeon used to call this living together apart. There is enough togetherness to keep them united, but there is enough recognition of diversity as well, so that No group feels like it is being imposed upon, it is being dictated policies by others. All over the world, where federalism functions, it is because of its ability to acknowledge this diversity and achieve a balance between the togetherness and the apartness.
0: By empowering local decision-making, but also enabling people to have a voice in national matters, federalism can support more representative and democratic governance.
4: So it is a regional federalism, and we give competencies for the local level. We make a genuine decision-making process, inclusive process. In my understanding, this is democracy. If you implement federalism in the right way, with understanding of the bigger picture, you can reach democracy.
0: And returning to the challenge of fostering trust in conflict-affected and fragile societies, in Marie-Joëlle's view, federal systems have a capacity to support trust-building through decentralized state architectures.
1: Where I think that federalism can actually help is that in my own research, I link trust to two things. Two functions of a state. The first is the state's ability to deter groups from using violence when they're dissatisfied with the status quo. And the second is the state's ability to assure all the groups that even though they might not agree with one another, the state will not itself use its own weapons against its people. Federalism, because it divides competencies and allows, for example, for parts of a federal system, so units, whether they're called provinces or republics or what have you, because it allows for units to have their own security apparatuses, is more likely, in my opinion, to provide both deterrence and assurance than, for example, a majoritarian system in which both internal security and external security are in the hands of whoever controls the state.
0: The case of federal Sudan provides an interesting example of a country in which federalism was applied in order to enable parties with seemingly irreconcilable differences to live peacefully alongside one another, albeit only temporarily.
1: Let's take the case of Sudan, which is a country in which there was a federal system which unfortunately did not last. So why was it that federalism was proposed for the Sudan before it split into two countries? It was because it allowed the country to reconcile things that usually are considered to be irreconcilable. On the one hand, there was a desire by the Khartoum-based leadership to maintain the territorial integrity and unity of the country. On the other hand, based on decades of conflict, You had a southern Sudanese population and a southern Sudanese leadership that were not willing to give up weapons and to rely on the good faith of the Khartoum authorities to rebuild the country. Federalism allowed for the Sudan to live for a period of six years in a situation in which you had a central government with power-sharing at the center between North and South, but you also had separate systems working in parallel. And so in many ways, that permitted unity to be maintained, but it also gave assurance to the South that should unity not work, it would not have to rebuild from scratch it was already starting to develop its own institutions of governance. In many ways, it seems to me that, yes, federalism can provide the ability to recognize the diversity of a country, of a population, of a society, to create something unified out of different segments that would otherwise look quite disparate.
0: Federalism does provide mechanisms to address key issues which drive and sustain conflict security inequality and resource distribution so why has application of federalism as a peacebuilding tool not always produced the intended outcomes there are particular challenges in establishing a federal arrangement in conflict affected societies these can limit the effectiveness of the system developed and in some cases produce unintended consequences firstly Fragile and conflict-affected societies often lack the capacity to develop and operate a functional federal system. Implementing a federal governance arrangement from scratch with limited resources is challenging, particularly if the new system is designed to replace a highly centralised government.
2: The application of federalism as a system is a very complex one, especially for countries that are not developed like Somalia, because it really takes an extraordinary amount of capacity to implement a federal system. It tends to be overly complex, large bureaucracies all across and maybe even duplicitous efforts by the states and the federal government in this context. Because of the complexity of implementing a federal structure, it really created a lot of tensions in the country between the federal government and the federal member states themselves. So it is going to take some time, probably decades in the Somali context to really achieve a more sustainable form of federalism. And obviously, there is no one size fits all when you speak of federalism. It's more or less customized to each context. In our context, we're still trying to figure that out, what that would actually look like. This was a country that was led by a military dictatorship, which overly centralized power and resources in one place. And so, to try to undo all of that after 21 years under that rule really is taking a lot of effort and energy, and we're still grappling with what the design and the format of federalism would look like in our context.
0: In Sudan, while federalism is now on the table as a means of securing lasting peace, achieving consensus on the exact type of federal system needed remains a challenge.
4: Talking here about a country is fragile, and in the same time,s is a post-conflict. Number one of the national issues, they're talking about regional federalism. All those armed movements, they are from the marginalized areas. North Sudan, Eastern Sudan, everywhere. The government started the process of the governor's arrangements uh, conference. Now there is a consultation happening at the local and state level. What I see, yes, those guys, they agreed about this regional federalism. The dynamics of agreeing or having consensus about what systems that we needed, this number one challenge. Because this is done only in the peace process, but there is other actors here, they should have consensus with them.
1: A federal system can be a very complicated system to navigate, particularly because of the various levels of governance. It can be a much more expensive system to run than, you know, a central government. And therefore, all of these things are things that populations need to understand so that they can make their own determinations when voting in a referendum or in any other kind of mechanism in which their voices can actually either make or unmake the progress that has been achieved elsewhere in negotiations.
0: In some cases, it may be more productive to work towards a fully-fledged federal system incrementally, by first enhancing the capacity for decentralization in the country. Muna believes that this is a necessary first step towards federalism in Yemen.
3: Before federalism, we need more decentralized systems that is based on a more competent role of the governors, of the local councils, because this is really where we have most of the issues. We have one of the best local council laws in the Middle East, But it needs to be effective and it needs implementation. I think we should start there and not jump into a full, complete federalism state. But we should, first of all, start with strengthening the current systems that are already there and then going into, gradually, to a federalism model that is unique for Yemen.
0: If they lack capacity, new federal institutions may not be able to function as effectively as intended.
1: Federal institutions can be overloaded early on in a post-conflict situation. We expect them to do something which is beyond their ability, even in functioning countries. There come issues where it is extremely difficult for the institutions alone to do the work. They are not sufficient to send signals to people that their opinions, that the things that matter to them are respected.
0: Another significant challenge is the perception and understanding of federalism among the groups who will ultimately be responsible for developing a federal system. Federalism is often viewed as a threat to the unity of a country, and scepticism is heightened when it is perceived as an imposition from outside.
2: There is no consensus around the issue of federalism in Somalia. There is a fairly substantial number of Somalis who view federalism as a form of government that would ultimately disintegrate Somalia when the rest of the nation, probably a slight majority, views it as a form of governance that would actually reintegrate the country after a civil war. So that political and theoretical debate is still at play.
4: Some people that criticize this regional federal system, they think about it as, and this is a historical understanding. People think this is about separation, about splitting. But some people are talking, if you make regional federal system and give them a lot of competencies with very small shared rule, this will affect the unity of the country.
2: When federalism was introduced to Somalia in 2004, it was under the duress of Ethiopia, a neighboring country, that is seen as a rival of Somalia by the majority of Somalis. And so most Somalis now, even if they appreciate the dividends that federalism brought them, it actually reminds them that this was shoved down their throat by their arch-rival.
0: And as Marie-Joëlle highlights political actors can manipulate messaging and debates around federalism for their own ends, undermining the integrity of the system.
1: People may not be specialists of politics, but they're voters. And voters can be manipulated into either supporting or actually completely undermining a federal system. Bosnia has a federal system, but the political parties have taken hold of the political game in such a way that not only have they convinced a lot of voters to continue to vote for ethnic parties, which have a very narrow understanding of what federalism entails, but they've also managed to block the real emergence of competitor parties that actually want to change the politics of the country and to make it more intergroup than intra.
0: Perception issues can be exacerbated if the federal framework is not sufficiently clear, as has been the case in Somalia over the past 15 years.
2: In the Somali context, many people would argue that cart was put before the horse. So federalism was essentially adopted without having a clarity or even a framework within which to work. And so it took now almost 20 years to try to even get some sort of clarity. I think now most people have accepted it as a reality, but there are still grievances against the federal system because Many people see it as weakening the centre at the expense of the nation as a country itself. So vis be, for example, our neighbours. Somalia used to be a very strong country vis-a-vis our countries, and today is a very weak country, largely or at least partially because of the autonomy of the member states and their ability to do things independently.
0: Federal institutions are not enough by themselves to guarantee the success of a peace process. Without sufficient political commitment to, and trust in, the federal arrangement, there is always the possibility that the federal system will fail. In Marie-Joëlle's view, this was one of the factors behind the 2011 separation of South Sudan from Sudan.
1: Building federal institutions does not, in and by itself, magically solve problems of trust. Trust is based on experience and in their experience of one another during the six years during which the Sudan functioned as a federal system, the two parties were not able to sufficiently trust one another. There were a number of reasons for that. Reasons having to do with the government of Sudan not willing to fully share power. Reasons having to do also with very strong support for independence autonomy in the South, but also supported internationally by some important players. And therefore, in many ways, federalism was not given a real running chance in the Sudan because no one really pressured the parties to make it work as well as it could. The result being that come 2011, there is a referendum and that referendum yields vote for independence.
0: If federal proposals fail to address issues considered essential by conflicting parties, they are likely to fail. Muna believes that an inadequate provision for sharing natural resources was one of the key problems of the 2014 proposal for Yemen.
3: The primary failing of the proposal for a federated Yemen was that it lacked a mechanism by which the country's natural resources and resource revenues would be distributed. And I, I know that this has happened in many other countries also, but with the heated discussions that had happened at that time and no preparations within the community, there was a big resistance. And then the Sarala movement or the Houthis, who were backed by Iran, were also at that time took the advantage of this weakness in the proposal. And so that's when we had the coup that happened and the taking over the, the country by force and military action.
0: Federal systems which don't provide appropriate avenues for minority groups to voice their concerns and protect their interests are likely to face problems.
1: When the Tigray people have grievances and they cannot express their grievances publicly without being met with repression, no matter how well-functioning the wheels of the federal system are, they will not be sufficient to convince people not to take up weapons. And that's where I think that the issue of assurance and deterrence comes in. In Ethiopia, what we have is a textbook case of the state failing to assure people that it is willing to listen to their grievances seriously without resorting too soon or too drastically to violence.
0: Somalia provides an interesting example of the difficulties that can occur when a fragile state adopts a federal system, but leaves important parts of the federal arrangement undefined.
2: In the Somali context, I think federalism is still a work in progress. We only have a frame, maybe a frame of reference, but we actually do not have the details to fill out that frame in terms of what type of federalism are we going to adopt, our constitution remains in a provisional format, meaning that it hasn't been finalized. And so this really opens the door for a lot of debate and interpretation of the constitution by various actors, especially the federal member states who interpret it the way they see fit. And so there is a constant tension between the federal government and the member states. Around the issues of power and resources.
0: Competition for resources is often one of the primary sources of tension in the development of a federal system. In Somalia and Sudan, distribution of resources is a key governance challenge that hasn't yet been resolved.
2: The final point or dynamic I would play out is the one relating to resources, both natural resources, but also revenues collected from the country. There's natural tension around that as well how to share it who's in charge of what, who's collecting what type of tax, and so on.
4: I think the most challenging part of the federalism for Sudan is the fiscal federalism. Because in the previous year, there is a federalism, but the fiscal federalism is not implemented in the proper way. Sudan very rich. All the region is very rich by different resources. The problem is all the revenue, the taxes, took from the states, coming to the centre, to Khartoum, and then decide who take what. Although there is a system of allocation of resources and all these things, and they have a very perfect equation according to the population of each area, but that's not implemented in a proper
0: way. May believes that an effective application of fiscal federalism is crucial to enabling the autonomy of the marginalised regions in Sudan and for fostering the development needed to reduce inequality.
4: The revenue of those national projects should, part of it should come to those cities. This really can solve a lot of problems if we're talking about the marginalised of those areas. If the people of the area controlling their resources using to develop their area, this will give chance for those areas to be developed. And in the same time, they can have the say at the national level. The fiscal federalism is affecting all things, culturally and socially and economically.
0: The provisional nature of the Somali constitution has provided state governments with the justification for operating independently in areas outside their jurisdiction. As Abdi explains, this unhealthy tension between the centre and the constituent units undermines the integrity of a federal system.
2: Obviously, a core element of federalism is to allow for a certain degree of autonomy to the units within the federal government. But to what extent would you allow for that? So for example, our constitution creates certain limitations for member states, including foreign policy, currency, military, national defense, and immigration. Those are under the domain of the federal government. But some of our states are actually conducting that business autonomously of the federal government and in violations of the constitution because the constitution itself is in provisional terms, so it hasn't been finalized. I do think that even in advanced federations like the U.S. and Germany and Canada even, there are inherent tensions that are built into all federal systems and that is natural But I think our objective here in Somalia is to try and limit that to a point where there are broad consensuses across the country on power and resource sharing within a federal structure. I think what the new federal system in Somalia has created is what many Somali people view as a parallel government competition sometimes very unhealthy competition and a constant struggle between the federal government and the
0: member states. And the tensions between shared rule and self-rule are also being reflected in the discussions on federalism in Sudan.
3: This is the most challenging
4: also. How we can make this unity in the same time to have the independent of the sub-national level. This is the issue of shared rule and self-rule some people they are focusing more on the self-rule and they are forget about shared rule, and this affects the balance of the system. This is the nature of the people. They are focusing on what they care about much and not focusing on the whole system, the comprehensive system, the bigger picture. I think as much as people can, capacitate and train about the importance of each. Segment of this system, it will be positively affect the implementation of the federalism and the sustainable peace in the country and the development.
0: Forum Fedcast is brought to you by the Forum of Federations, the global network on federal and evolved governance. Despite the challenges people living in fragile and conflict-affected states do believe federalism can make an important contribution to peace and stabilisation efforts. The question now is, can we use this form of power-sharing more effectively to develop a more sustainable federalism pathway to peace? How can we maximise its opportunities while minimising its limitations? First of all, as Marie-Joëlle highlights, it's important to remember that federalism is not a rigid one-size-fits-all solution but rather an approach to governance based on a number of basic principles.
1: I don't like calling federalism a model because a model suggests something that can be applied in a bit of a cookie-cutter approach. To me, federalism is actually a principle. It is a principle, or a dual principle, of willingness to compromise and recognition of diversity. That's what federalism no matter what type of federal system we end up having is built upon the pillars of federalism are in these principles that communities recognize as their modus vivendi the willingness to live together is premised upon sharing in decision making where necessary but having the opportunity decide separately as well on issues that are of particular importance. The other thing that I would say is not to be too hung up on doctrine.
0: It's also helpful to keep in mind that federalization, like any power-sharing arrangement designed to produce a lasting settlement, is a process that might not achieve results right away.
4: Federalism, it could be the tool for peace-building, But we have to understand from the beginning. It's not something that we decide to implement it today and we get the outcome tomorrow. It is a process of learning how to implement federalism so that we can reach peace and then sustainable peace and then development. It needs really people to be patient and to understand it well and to implement it perfectly. This is really one of the problems facing people is that they are want fast result, And I don't think it is one of the processes that we can get a fast result.
0: And to be effective, the design and function of any federal system must be tailored to the unique conditions and circumstances of a respective country. In fragile context especially, this is critical to ensure the governance model is locally owned by the population, and tackles the issues that drive conflict.
3: I definitely think it's an important mechanism or tool or model to prevent violence, because most of the violence is usually because of power-sharing issues and competency and centralization. But I also think that it should be designed by the people themselves. And we should not just say, well, this country has it and it worked." We have a collapsing economy. We have an issue with our ports. We have an issue with our neighbors, our borders. So we have so many things that are very unique that we need to tackle in a different way. To have a model of federalism which is unique to Yemen, we cannot just bring in any other model and try to implement it or impose it on the Yemeni people because it won't work. It won't work because of the grievances that we have in the north and the south. This one uniform for all is just definitely an old-school approach that doesn't work.
2: The conditions need to be a consensus around the form of federalism, the type of federalism that the society needs to adopt. It needs to be a customized federalism. There is no one size fits all. I mean, India's federalism obviously is different to that of Canada and and so on and, and so forth. I think a basic thing that needs to happen is to have a clarity on the type of federalism. How do you share power and resources? How do you decentralize certain uh, services? That is what's lacking in our context and maybe in other contexts as well.
1: To my mind, there is definitely a promise, but the promise to be actualized needs serious adaptation to the realities of specific countries as you're thinking about designing or proposing federal solutions, they need to be adapted to the problems they're trying to address. If the problem is a problem of resource sharing, then the country might be repackaged in a very different way than if the problem is a problem, for example, of language or a recognition of various ethnicities or what have you. Smaller countries might have different challenges adapting a federal system than larger countries, or vice versa. The first thing to do is to really understand what is it that we're trying to solve and what mechanism, what part of federalism can help with that.
3: There is need
4: for technical expertise to put these demands in a very concrete structure even in the regional federalism there is a different kind of regional federalism the most important was the competences what kind of competences how we can we can divide those regions in what criteria according to ethnic groups or according to the biological regions according to what we need to do this during the previous regime they said we have a federalism based on the state but in the same time, what is happening is not federalism. One of the dynamics, what's the important key for people to understand how to implement this structure? This is very important, and this coming to the most important part, the subnational governance arrangement. If the subnational unit, especially the locality, not understand what really is the federalism. Why it is a regional federalist, what's the advantage of it, or what's the disadvantage for the specific region, and how they are going to implement it. This will affect the implementation completely.
0: Any federalization process that aims to produce sustainable peace must be inclusive. Negotiations that exclude particular groups, or are only conducted between the elites, are unlikely to achieve success.
3: Now the discussions are between the elites, and this is actually one of the major flaws in my point of view of the national dialogue, that the discussions were mainly with the elites and there wasn't a down-up approach, and that is really important. So preparing the people for federalism or any other solutions that might come up in Yemen has to come from a bottom-up approach. That's why I'm really advocating for more bottom-up approaches and work with women-led and youth-led organizations, especially the grassroots.
2: This is where we failed in Somalia, and I fear that other countries are now on that path, in that it's a top-down approach. Federalism, in my view, should be a bottom-up approach, that people should be allowed to design it so specifically that they should know how to share power and resources.
4: I am a fan of the bottom-up approach. I think everything should start from the bottom, from the localities. Because those people, they are not aware about the technical issues of the governor's system. But they are aware enough about their needs and demands. It should be inclusive. Because if we want to talk about different political parties or armed groups or other sectors, civil society, all those should be involved. For me, it is not necessary to be in the executive branch or a legislative branch. The most important thing is to have a very concrete, genuine decision-making process that includes everybody from the locality level until the higher level of the government.
0: In Yemen, the lack of an inclusive process has led to more violence. Groups who feel that their interests are not being represented have been incentivized to take up arms, as Muna explains.
3: Now we also have a lot of militarized factions, and they're not reflected. What happens is that those who don't feel that they are reflected during the peace negotiations, which are led by the UN, are taking up arms and starting violence here and there. And because of that, unfortunately, the UN then listens to them and gives them attention. We are actually rewarding warring parties for their violence. We need a more realistic peace process that does not only discuss with the elite of the elite. The approach to Yemen currently that we are seeing is a one uniform for all. And this just doesn't work for Yemen. It needs a more comprehensive approach. So that's why I think it is crucial for an inclusive process, particularly with the Yemeni women and the youth leading it from the ground upwards. Because they are really reflecting what's going on on the ground.
0: And importantly, any peace process where federalism is used must be inclusive from the very beginning. All groups must have the opportunity to have a say in the design and development of the federal system.
1: It is too late to involve people once you've designed the system. In every country in which federalism has been implemented, whether we think about Yemen, Iraq, Sudan, if federalism is not something that is introduced early on to the people, and if the people do not have an opportunity to contribute to the building of institutions, there is no way for whatever model emerges not to be completely controlled, manipulated, and hostage to political games. That is not only true of federalism. In my opinion, it is true of most solutions to conflicts. For solutions to conflicts to hold, you don't just need elite assent; you also need
0: popular For Muna, the inclusion of young people in the peacebuilding process is crucial.
3: We need to start thinking of the young people. I've heard more wisdom from young people than I have ever heard from the elite. So I really appreciate that. And you can see this in the climate change movement, for instance, how they have really, really changed and made an impact there because it was led by them. We should give the young people an opportunity to really design their own future. I think we should be open to more flexible approaches.
0: The need for an inclusive, tailored approach in applying federalism raises an interesting question. At what point in the peace process should federalism be introduced? In Abdi and Muna's view, it's necessary to address the fundamental issues which led to conflict in the first place, before or alongside any process of federalization. Achieving a settlement will be challenging without processes of transitional justice and reconciliation.
2: Federalism is not a panacea. I fully agree with that. There is a tendency among international development partners sometimes to fall back into federalism as a template to resolve conflicts in countries. And while it is very much admirable approach because it allows people to have local control, it can create the unintended consequences of disintegration. So this is an excellent question of where in the process do you introduce federalism as a form of peace building? I would argue that this should be at a time when you have effectively reached a, I think reconciliation should come before federalism itself. You need to solve the underlying political factors that led to conflict in the first place and then allow for people to design a federal system that actually works for them.
3: Transitional justice, I personally think that it should go along with the same process because leaving it to last means leaving all the grievances, means that any approach, any solution for Yemen will definitely fail if we don't start attending to some of the top grievances. This is important because this war was because of the absence of a collective political will to address just even the basic problems on water and electricity. Postponing discussions like these after the end of the conflict is just not effective. Everything is being avoided right now, and whenever you bring up any subject, they say, you know, post-conflict, transitional justice, anything, anything. Post-conflict, after the conflict, after we end the conflict. Well, the conflict won't end until we start doing two things. First of all, we start responding to the needs of the people and providing their services because they are also in need of their salaries, they're in need of their income. Uh, They're starving to death and it's because we have a weak economy. So we need to strengthen the economy, we need an inclusive approach and we need to start holding violators and spoilers accountable.
0: But Marie-Joëlle also cautions against leaving discussions about the federal governance arrangements until late in the process.
1: One should not wait until the end of a negotiation process to engage with society on the nature of the state. People need to be brought along, they need to be educated, they need to understand what federalism can promise, what its downsides are
0: as well. And it is important that, when it comes time to design and develop the federal structure, people have the capacity to understand and actually implement the system.
4: After people reach the consensus, they need to have a lot of training and capacity building for those who... Should implement the federal system in Sudan. It started from the ministry that we have here, the Ministry of Federal Governors. Start from that ministry, going down to the localities that they need, because those the guys that are responsible for implementing this system.
0: Muna believes there is a need for a more holistic peace process in Yemen, in which resource distribution, security sector reform, and the development of state institutions. Are more connected to one another.
3: We need to have a more strategic vision for Yemen in a way that the natural resources are, first of all, divided in a more just way, and then the the security sector reform and military reform is a must so that we have more law and order. Talking about linking the grievances to the resources to the competency of the federal government, that is something that the people really are calling for because we've seen so much corruption. Even in humanitarian aid, people are starving to death and they're still suffering because of a weak government and also from the armed forces and militias on the ground. And the only way to really prevent more suffering is to really instate institutions and security uh, reform in the country. Uh, without that, I, I think we're just going to go into more violence.
0: In any peace-building process, federalism must be flexible enough to account for the complexities of the situation on the ground.
1: I would add to the mix of recommendations, building flexibility into the system. And here, you know, I think about how inflexible the formula in Bosnia is. And I think about how that has completely tied the hands of those who see the problems with that formula and would like to change it. There is no one federal system and federalism in and by itself can be actually mixed and matched with elements coming from other styles of political governance. And in many ways, this kind of tinkering, I think is absolutely essential In countries coming out of conflict.
0: If federalism remains flexible, it's more likely to produce the type of unique settlement that is required within a specific context.
3: I think it's a gradual strategy that has to happen in Yemen. We can't go into a full-fledged kind of federalism that we see outside. I think it should be gradual. Why we're thinking of a unique approach is because of the fragmentation, because of the division between the people, because of their own needs. And also even from the geographical point of view, even in the same area in Taz, you'll find the mountainous area and then you'll find another area which is by the sea in the same city. This diverse community, culture, the geography, the political divide, all of that needs a unique approach.
0: And finally, what about that tricky issue of trust? Marie-Joëlle believes that intergovernmental relations, or IGR, Are a crucial domain in any federalization process designed to foster peace.
1: We usually think a lot about institutions, but the glue of any federal system is in intergovernmental relations, in building occasions for person to person connections. Because ultimately, trust building is about experiences, and experiences are not between disembodied institutions, whether provincial or federal or unit center, they are between people who learn to trust each other, to work with one another, and eventually do not want to give up on one another when the going gets tough. So it seems to me that what's very important is to build intergovernmental relations, to really think about building things such as regular meetings of ministers, regular meetings of bureaucrats. And that is all the more important post-conflict because it breaks down the walls that conflicts have built between communities and between people. I would never stress this enough. To me, IGR is the glue of federal systems. It's what makes them work, function, it's the grease of the wheels, and it absolutely needs to be given much more attention than it usually is.
0: Now we've assessed the promise, opportunities, challenges and limitations of federalism and explored how it might be applied more effectively, where does that leave us in terms of its evolution into a more codified peace-building approach? We asked our experts what they thought about the future prospects for a federalism pathway for peace in their respective contexts.
3: Any form of federalism needs the right mechanisms and I think it could well prove to be a useful model for Yemen in the future but not before the state is able to provide basic services, security, and the system of justice.
1: Someone once told me that federalism was like marriage. It's bringing together two people that are very different. And trust is, of course, the foundation of with partnership. The problem is that in marriages, very often people forget that they have to continue to work on their marriages. They take it for granted that the other will ride along no matter what happens. I do think that that's a very apt analogy and that no matter what federal design one proposes, even if it's perfect, working at it is what will make it last, what will make it sustainable, and what will allow it to weather crises.
2: I think we are on to something, but we're going to face a lot of bumps down the road.
0: That was Forum Fedcast. Huge thanks to our guests Marie Joelle Zaha, Muna Lukman, Abdi Ainte, and May Taha. This podcast was brought to you by the Forum of Federations and Food for Humanity. For more on the Forum's work in peacebuilding and supporting governance development in fragile and conflict-affected countries, check out our website at forumfed.org. That's forumfed.org. For the previous episode of this podcast on federalism as a peacebuilding tool in divided societies, just search Forum Fedcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Podbean. You can also find us on Twitter at ForumFed and as Forum of Federations on Facebook and YouTube. We want to hear from you. Send your thoughts on a federalism pathway for peace to podcast at forumfed.org. That's podcast at forumfed.org. Get in touch and tell us what we missed and let us know what subjects you would like covered on future episodes. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and give us a review on your platform of choice. This episode was written and hosted by me, Liam Whittington. It was produced by Asma Zrebi Emily Tremblay and Liam Whittington, with production support from Diana Shebanova and Manus Gupta. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time on Forum Faircast. Thanks for joining us for this installment of the Geneva Peace Week podcast series. Don't forget to subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave a review about something you learned. You can also visit our website to continue the conversation with the makers of this episode. Or join us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Geneva Peace Week. Above all, thank you for being here, and we hope you'll join us again for another episode.